Hello, I'm Matt, and welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. Steve is out making money for the company again, so I'm back in the host's chair. This week, I'm joined by our podcast regulars, Artie Matanda. Hello. Hi, Artie. Seb Rose. Hello. Although Seb's actually not a regular, he's new on the podcast, I believe. Is this your first time, Seb? This is my first podcast, yeah. Very welcome. Seb's just started working for Cucumber. Um, And you may know him as the author of the Cucumber for Java book. And we are joined this week by a great guest, uh, Emily Weber. Hello, Emily. Hi. Thanks for having me. So I invited Emily onto this podcast, as I usually do, um, with people who I have had interesting conversations with and I just wanted to carry the conversation on. And I thought you might want to listen in, um, listeners. So uh, Emily was formerly the head of Agile Delivery at the Government Digital Service, and she has written, she's written a couple of books, in fact, um, but most recently she's written a book called Building Successful Communities of Practice, and I think that's um, probably based on some things that she learned when she was doing that role at GDS, and also um, as she's now working as an independent consultant, helping other organisations to uh, enjoy the same kind of magic as was being enjoyed at at GDS. So um, I invited Emily on because I think communities of practice are a really important thing for uh, organisations that work with uh, Cucumber and BDD, so the the things that are relevant to our listeners, because what I see often happen when, um, when we start to teach these ideas is that we're bringing together specialists from lots of different teams into a training room, and it's often the first time that uh, the different, say, testers or business analysts have really spent that much time together talking about how they do their jobs and what's good about their jobs and how they could make their jobs better. Because they're all sort of isolated working in their own individual teams. It's kind of sometimes one of the things about Agile is that we break up silos and put people into the different teams and then they don't get together to talk. And um, I've often encouraged organisations that I've trained to start setting these things up. And I had no idea that there was a kind of manual for how to do it. So this is great. Um, And thank you for writing it, Emily. So, I mean, that's kind of my pitch about why it's relevant. But what what about you, Emily? Like, why is this something that, um, that, that you were so, I don't want to say passionate, but so interested in and enthusiastic about that you wanted to write a book? You, you were motivated to write and finish a book. Um, so my background with communities actually comes from before uh, doing doing it in a work setting. Um, and I think for me it's something that I always get people together. I think I'm a bit of a connector and I've run community websites and been involved in uh, housing, you know, kind of co-ops and getting people together around topics um when uh, particularly when i was at gds which is an agile environment um I, what i found is that there are lots of people doing similar roles um, and as you mentioned agile kind of breaks up silos but almost creates its own silos as well so you go from having people that are doing the same role sitting in the same space building trust talking with each other and learning to breaking them up and putting them in teams which is great for team working um, but not so good for developing uh, roles so you kind of need some kind of structure to help bring those people back together 
Um, and that's where the community of practice comes in. And there's lots of things that it does. It's kind of, it, it does support learning dramatically, um, but it's also very much around not throwing people in at the deep end and expecting the kind of sink or swim um, and get on with it and actually putting a support network around people so they can do their, do their jobs better. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It reminds me as well. So Emily and I met on this uh, training from the back of the room training that we did with Sharon Bowman. And one of the things that Sharon emphasised on that training was this thing of connections. And she said how actually if you're going to skip anything else on the training that you do, the main thing to focus on is is creating connections between the people in the room so that they can learn from each other and kind of creating a level of trust within the room so people are going to learn from each other. And it really struck me how this is the same kind of idea, really, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it's kind of... Um, when you talk about collaboration, it's not just about putting people together. What you get is uh, individuals building on each other's ideas. So you end up with something that's, that's kind of greater than the sum of the parts of the individuals. Um, and that's, you know, in the training that we did, that's what that was all about. And getting people together in a room and almost you know setting them off on a topic or just seeing what happens um will will build that collaboration will mean that you get something better out of it than you would out of individuals how do you get um introverts to participate in this kind of stuff because as an introvert myself i know I, i see the benefits obviously of collaborating and talking across teams and all of that that's part of my role is to encourage that but i also always feel this slight reluctance as an introvert to go out of you know a small group and reach out to a larger group how do you encourage people in a in a room to that aren't naturally inclined to go talk to other people to do that i think uh something that you said there about small group and larger group there's there's a huge um there's a huge benefit in keeping groups small actually mm-hmm. so if you are getting people together around a topic um, it can't be too big. If it becomes too big, it becomes kind of unwieldy and it's difficult to build trust. Um, if you keep it small, um, you can help kind of foster a safe environment. Mm-hmm. And I often talk in communities of practice, or I talk about it in the book and I talk about it um, when I speak at events, about having the ability to close the door and keep that safe space. And it's very difficult for a group to you know, build trust, be all right with asking stupid questions or admitting that they don't know things um, and seeking help from each other. It's very difficult to do that if you if you can't have that safe space. Um, so it's not about, uh, you know, getting someone and throwing them in front of 200 people and expecting them to speak to them. Um, and that's no good for anyone, really. OK. So within, within the organisations that you've, um, I mean, you've introduced or uh, led towards... Uh, community practice as as a way of uh, linking different parts of the organisation. What what barriers have you have you come across? Um, because certainly I've I've been to plenty of organisations where they've tried they've tried to pick it off the shelf, uh, but it hasn't sort of fitted in with the way they work. Uh, and I wonder what what your take on that was. So I think the the biggest barriers are. Um... Allowing people to have the time to dedicate to it. And this is particularly difficult in organisations that have things like timesheets and utilisation rates uh-huh. and t- terrible things like that. Um, because they need, they need to have time to, to meet other people and time to spend on learning. Um, 
so that becomes quite difficult. Um, other things is if there isn't setting up a community of practice takes quite a lot of work and effort, uh, particularly at the start, whilst uh, whilst it's forming, and it actually needs somebody or some people that are going to keep driving it forward. Um, and much like much of the practices that we do in our work, it actually takes discipline to do it. You have to kind of keep at it, even even if you're having sessions where three people turn up, it, it, you have to kind of keep um, keep doing it on a regular basis. And if there isn't people driving it forward, and it tends to kind of fall off by the wayside. Um, and there, there's, I always find there are particular people that are good at doing that, and not everybody is is a natural community facilitator but uh the other thing that always derails in those kind of situations if the people that are trying to move it forward are also full-time on projects which i see happen quite a lot as well um and expected to to do this on top of their day jobs it just it tends to not happen because the the projects or the demands of teams or stakeholders tends to take over so um this is uh, I'm glad you said that because it sounds a lot like uh, you know a, a familiar refrain that we talk to with our clients about you know, any new approach of doing things that might add benefit takes a significant investment and you know you can't just say hey there's a community practice we could do a wiki and suddenly it's all going to be uh, sunshine and light. So for instance, have you seen have you gone to clients who have uh, watched the the blog posts and read the articles on the Spotify model, and then they've just tried to implement that as some sort of magic pixie dust, and been surprised when it hasn't hasn't picked off kicked off well. Yeah, and I think that happens uh, quite a lot of the time. And, and Spotify, you know, talks to communities of practice and talk and community of interests um, as well. Um, and much like anything, people try try to take things off the shelf replicate them and find they don't work um, the consultants at spotify themselves you know talk about this isn't a model <laughs> stop calling it the spotify model it's not a model um because that's what people tend to do they go great we've got this thing let's go ahead and do it uh not realizing that it actually takes time and effort and i do i i also i come across clients that that say well um we've read the book we're doing all the things uh, and i say well are you actually meeting up regularly? Are you talking to each other? Are you, are you building trust? It's like, no, no, we're going to get to that <laughs> bit. Um, and you can't, you need, to, you need to build that trust and those relationships between people in order to get all the benefits out of it. Would you say there's a, you need a person running this full time or is that something that you can share between the communities or how, what's the ideal way and what's the realistic way let's say or practical way of running it it depends i've seen places i think you you kind of need full time um whether that's divided by people or just one person that's fine um i've seen quite a few places that are putting in a bit like i was a head of role type um role um and that person can is there to really drive that forward that's not an ideal state to stay in. It's not great that one person ends up leading it. It's the perfect place you want to get to is that lots of people um, keep making it happen. So if you can, if you can divide that through through around a few people, then that's that's probably more ideal place to start. But it completely depends on on the organisation um, and what the organisation is willing to invest in it as well. Okay. I really like this model that you have about the stages of a community of practice, the sort of stages of maturity and the amount of 
um, input energy that's needed to move the community forward. And so this idea that, like, at the beginning, you need to give it lots of energy and it may pick up this initial wave of its own energy and then start to tail off. And that's kind of the point when you need to come back and really look after them and nurture them. That's probably the point when you've got three people turning up to the meetings sometimes in the summer holidays and stuff. And then if you can push through that, that's then the point when you get to this sort of self-sustaining stage where it's actually, uh, you, you, you know, you'd have to try hard to, to make it stop. Yeah, and it's like uh, something new happens and everyone goes, yeah, that's a great idea. We think this is awesome. We're going to come and do it, come every week and we're going to come and um, learn the new thing or talk about talk about what we need to talk about. And then reality kind of sets back in and they say, but actually I'm really busy and I need to do this thing over here. Um, that I've seen that happen quite a lot and it can feel quite disheartening at that point because it's like, oh, everything's uh, going backwards again. And it is about pushing through um but you don't really get the real benefits until you start getting into a more mature phase um, what i what i talk about a lot at the moment um is when you do get to self-sustaining if you have a you have a group of people that start to own the thing that it is that they get together around um so say for example you have a you know a community of interest around bdd the, the people in that community start to become their own centre of excellence almost. So instead of having outside of that a framework of people saying, this is how we do things in this organisation, this is how you have to do that, what you have is a bunch of passionate people that together um, help define qualities and standards and better practices and keep revisiting that all the time. So it's the people the people most interested um, and closest to it that that form what that looks like and then that kind of makes it better for the organisation. Well, so if you get these groups of people together, what, what, what are some things that, like some concrete activities that you can do as a group, you know, just getting in a room and talking about what's working or not working or things like that are, are kind of obvious ideas or maybe somebody showing... I don't know, a new thing that they've been working on and sharing that. But what kind of what, what activities have you um, seen really work? Especially, I guess, I'm thinking about sort of to build that group and help it to really have self-confidence and self-identity as well about, like, what it stands for. What, what kind of activities have you, have you seen work? Um, so definitely some of the initial activities that tend to happen is people getting together, either, you know, almost going around and talking about some of their problems, um, or you know where they're at with projects other things that can be and it's and it's really good to start mixing that up as well so other things can be um, a group of people identifying uh, where they have something that they want to learn more about someone bringing that in getting external speakers in uh, visiting other places um, that do things in a similar way do similar things to you but but address things in different ways can be great I always recommend that people um, conferences generally record um talks so getting together and, and watching talks but another thing that's really uh, that's really good to do is things like um coding carters or deliberate practice so i often say to i was talking to some bas the other day so they run lots of workshops uh, and i was saying to them that practicing some of those workshops in a safe environment before taking them out to 
real people um, and getting kind of getting a sense of how they work before uh, doing it live can be a really great way of getting better at what you do and getting feedback. So it's, it's always good to vary depending on what you need. Um, it's also very good to understand what the vision and goals is uh, of your community. So it's great to get together and share and you'll get, you'll get loads out of that, but it's good at some point to say, you know, what is it that we want to do and how do we think that we can make things better um, and try and aim towards that. So th- that's, uh, that sounds really quite crucial because, you know, you've already described how uh, kicking off and keeping a community practice, community of interest going is a significant investment of time. So that's investment from the company. I wonder how, how have you seen these uh, communities demonstrate value back to the company so that they, they, they keep being given that uh, opportunity to invest in them? Yes, and that's a tough one as well. And it's a very difficult one to measure, uh, that's for sure. Uh, but things that I've seen communities doing that are valuable. So what happens a lot, and this, this can be good and also take up a lot of time, is things like hiring and skills development. So taking on the responsibility of that, as well as setting objectives. Uh, I have worked in some organisations that have fairly abstract objectives for some of their staff um, and making that a bit more specific to what the people actually do day to day. Um, Things like creating, so, you know, design communities often do things like create design patterns that can then be used by the rest of the organisation. And... Those kind of outputs become, those kind of outputs become really valuable, and they become owned by that community. Um, another thing, probably more anecdotally, not something that I've measured that I found really vital when I was at GDS, is that we had quite a good spread of skills, and because there was that support network there, we could hire in people. <clears throat> we could hire in people that were less skilled at a more entry level, and they could quite quickly get. Um, get more skilled uh, because they had the opportunity to learn, they had the opportunity to have feedback loops, they could shadow other people um, so their their learning was almost accelerated Do you think um, you could have communities of practice in an informal way if your company doesn't support it um, officially or financially let's say do you think it's worth even trying to do that? just on your own, not not in, on your own as an individual, but as, you know, a team? Yes, definitely. Um, and not all communities, and actually, you know, mandating communities of practice probably isn't a great thing to do. They, they do need to be voluntary. People need to want to be there, um, or it disrupts it quite a lot. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, we all need... What we actually need as people is ways of talking to other people in order to get better at what we do and also a support network around us so that we have people to go to when we have problems or we know we're not alone. Those are really important and those are things that people can do uh, without having the support of an organisation. What might happen in the future is if you are showing that it's a valuable thing that then you can turn to the organisation and say, this is going really well and we're getting all this great stuff. Can you now you know, give us a little bit of budget so we can have some away days or recognize that we're doing this and give give us some time to do it so like if i'm a let's say i'm an enthusiastic tester who has like would like to get together with the other testers in my organization and talk about my job 
but this isn't something that goes on at the moment. I'm pretty sure if I try and ask that, I don't know who to ask even for permission to do this, but I know some of the other people. Like, what's the first step? What What do you think is the f- first thing I should do? Apart from obviously going to tacitlondon.com and buying a copy of this excellent <laughs> book. What What would I do while I was waiting for it to arrive in the post? That's probably a later step. <laughs> Um, you know, it's one day delivery on Prime. Um, no, I don't think that's the first step you would do, actually. I think the first thing you'd do is is go and chat to some people, uh, have a coffee, have some, you know, have a beer. Um, actually, one thing I didn't mention before, uh, coffee and beer and eating uh, and social activities are really important for any community to get to know each other. Um, it's just about reaching out to some people and having something to talk about and saying hey, we do something similar, let's go and have a chat. Um, and when you get people together, amazing things will happen. <laughs> yeah, it's so simple as that. Just go and socialise and, and start out with that, find reasons to get together and do more things. Yeah, and having a thing, having something to talk about is is a great way of connecting with people. So it's quite a different thing to say, hey, we do something similar, let's go and chat about this thing. Um, it's a lot easier to do than just go up to someone and say, can we have a coffee? Um, someone that you don't know. That can that can be much harder to do. Um, and the same, I always say to people, <clears throat> I always say to people that um, if you've, even if there's someone, you know, that's not in your organisation, that's outside your organisation, someone you've followed their blog or whatever, and you want to talk about something, reaching out to someone and say, hey, I think you, I think we could, You've got something really interesting to say about this thing. Let's talk about it. Um, you can do that, and people respond quite well to it. Yeah, it's surprising. Often people who uh, seem apparently famous, and therefore surely they must be too far too busy to talk to me on the internet, how, how uh, welcome they might actually be to coming along to see you and talk at your company at lunchtime or something. If, if you're... Um, so let's say you're not a practitioner, right? But say you're kind of a... Um, a a manager who's looking at your team or a group of teams and thinking, you know, it'd be really good actually if these people would get together with each other once in a while and share ideas and and stuff. But you can see that there isn't really like maybe the, the culture of the organization used to be that people were very used to being told what to do. And you're now in a kind of trying to have a more self-organizing philosophy and you're kind of waiting for somebody to show that initiative, but it's not, it's not happening how do you nudge that along? How do you kind of coax that and, and nurture it? What's what, what's the first steps of somebody in that, in that sort of position? So um, I see that happen a lot, actually. Organisations where people don't necessarily feel like they have the permission to step forward and do something. Um, if you're someone's manager, you, you do have some ability to give them some of that permission. Um, so you can yeah, speak to them and say or help them, you know, understand that they can do it. Um, The best types of people to look for to do that is those, you know, those people that are enthusiastic and are are doers, are quite good at getting things done. Um, It's also good to look for people that have social capital. So people that are, uh, you know, well-connected and well-respected. Like any, in any kind of change situation, those are the people that will help bring others along with them. So if you can identify someone like that, 
give them some permission if it's a if it's an organization where people are used to being told what to do you can help you know you can help make that one of their objectives if that makes it easier for them um or give them a bit of a remit uh, one thing i've seen in some organizations is it's kind of naming people um that they are the person that drives something forward or does something helps give it a bit of kudos and helps give them helps give them them the permission to do that and also means that people know where to come that's interesting we just had a company meet up at cucumber two three weeks ago and uh we all started to put like badges on the different roles that we play at, at work rather than just getting on with it which is what we've been doing for the last three years and it has it has already had an interesting galvanizing effect in terms of people feeling like they have more permission to get on with the things that they know they want to and need to be getting on with doing anyway it's 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 really interesting that yeah just putting a label on it can can help it's a recognition as well so it's a bit of a recogni- recognizing that you're doing some good stuff and people appreciate what you're doing as well because uh, yeah. it can be really it can be really easy to not tell people how much you appreciate what it is that they do yeah, and in fact, people sometimes feel, especially in that in that kind of like a thing like setting up a community of practice where you're trying to almost sort of fit it in between the in the cracks in between all of the other stuff that obviously the organisation needs to be doing. You you almost feel like you're being subversive or like you shouldn't really be spending your time doing that. And I think that's like that's definitely how I felt about some of the things I was doing at Cucumber until I got a got a, a you know a badge for for doing those things. And it's yeah, I think it's I can really see how that can help. There is, uh, when I, I talked earlier about communities own, owning uh, the quality and standards of what it means to do the thing that is they're doing. So let's take something like BDD, for example. Uh, if you have a bunch of people that are interested in that and are moving the organisation towards that way, they are a really good place to, first of all, identify that there needs to be some training in an area. or So if they don't, amongst themselves, have the skills to help other people learn bringing someone in from outside to do do some training in that area um and that coming from the community really helps because it means that it's the community that want to learn that um and then the ongoing learning of that as well so if you do any kind of training course that's all well and good but if you do a training course and then don't revisit it again it will quickly kind of leave your brain um if you carry on uh, repeating that training uh, on a regular basis or finding opportunities then to either you know shadow someone else that's doing something or pair with someone else that's doing something that will help that stick in your brain it will also help you know explore new ways to do it and discuss new ways that you might go about doing it um, so it's that experiential learning that becomes really important that if you're not trying something out after learning it it would just disappear um, and having a having a community around that will really help give the opportunities to be able to do that it's kind of yeah putting putting money into a community of practice will actually help help with training it's that um i often talk about the fact you know you, ha- you might have a training budget allocated to you and you use that to go and do things but that that only goes so far it doesn't really complete the picture this so i'm i'm now intrigued to ask you a bit about this so this is a puzzle um i think seb alluded to a bit about we sort of work with clients and they they seem very um constrained by the pressure to deliver projects particularly to give 
people who've been through a training that we've delivered say the space afterwards to learn and practice and I often talk about um, the analogy of say a musician or a sports person like if you think about footballers um, maybe not at the moment when they're playing in a tournament but in general they spend most of their week practicing and training and then they perform for a short period on the weekend and computer programmers at work generally just spend all day long performing and they don't really get much if any time to practice and train and, and, and improve and I, it, it seems really broken to me and I, I suppose without wanting to just get into a, like a moany conversation about how awful it is like have you seen light bulbs go on for for kind of manager ma- management people about like why this needs to shift and and what what's a good way of helping people to see that that needs to shift do you, do you think apart from ranting at them about footballers which is what I tend to do what other tools are there to help with that um so i mean i often i think it's quite hard for people to see uh to to, uh, to kind of understand that analogy when it comes it's out i mean it sounds great but when it comes to actually people doing work it's like well i don't, I don't want them to only work on uh the weekends i want them to work all week and all weekends no <laughs> i like um that's quite a hard thing to do i i often go down a different route and i i often talk more about support networks um and motivation so that if people don't feel supported in their job um, and aren't getting better at what they do, they won't feel motivated and they won't stay. And the work that they produce won't be the best that they could produce if they had that network around them. So I, t- I tend, to, tend to talk more about that than the other thing. Um, but I think one thing that talks to what you're talking about uh, is feedback loops um, and if you're just coding the whole time and your your feedback loops are possibly quite long uh, so you don't you kind of know if something works but you don't really know if it works really well unless uh, a bug comes back a bit later and it, you can't really remember what it was that you were doing at the time and you kind of patch it if you've got quite rapid feedback loops so you you are doing things like you know coding carters or deliberate practice or you know talking to other people and talking things through and getting that rapid feedback loop then you're not you aren't learning as quickly um so i think that's that's probably more of the tack that i take but i like the i like the football and footballer analogy i might use that one <laughs> yes feel free I, I suppose um because we we both know woody um and woody's been on this podcast in fact um and he talks about how important learning is and sort of making learning be a first class deliverable i can't remember if that's exactly the phrase that he uses but but really promoting it as being the a, 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 an important goal of of your activity day to day i think that's something that organizations often lose sight of is how important it is to just keep learning especially in something like software delivery where everything's changing all the time the technology is changing the problem that you're solving is is changing it's really important to have people be learning and be good at learning yep and it's also important that it isn't uh singular people learning that they are learning together so that it's not one person with all the knowledge and the moment they leave it's all gone it's about uh kind of 
bringing knowledge into the collective brain rather than in, into individuals' brains. Yeah, and that's yeah, and that builds sort of stronger stronger learning for the whole organisation. Right, I think I'm being told we've got to get off. So thanks very much, Emily, for giving us your time. And uh, to Artie and Seb for your interesting questions. And to you, dear listeners, for staying with us. Don't forget to check out the show notes for a link to Emily's book and everything else we've mentioned today. Please remember you can subscribe and share the podcast on iTunes. It helps everyone find the podcast and it helps us find new listeners. And we'll hopefully... Oh, I have to say some other things. I'll say them in a minute and we'll record that and then Theo can patch it all together. So let's just say bye. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Bye.